The Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about what's going on in the world, and we look at it from the perspective of our Catholic social teaching. We kind of look at it from those values which make up an important basis of our Catholic faith and the beliefs that we think are important when we look at how would our world be more just and more compassionate. And, you know, we look at it from the point of view of the dignity of the human person, the value of work and the dignity of work. We look at it from the point of view of solidarity. And so there are a variety of perspectives that we, you know, bring to bear on this. And we look at the issues that are topical, some of them very much in the news. Others are long-term, which have a long-term uh, impact on where, where we're headed. You know, and I guess sometimes when we look at issues like this, there are people who say, well, you know, how is that about religion? Isn't religion about praying and isn't religious about, you know, getting to heaven and meditating and those type of things? Without a doubt, of course, that's what religion is about. But that's not all that religion is about, because two basic parts of our Catholic faith, which are critically uh, important, fundamental, is the first book of the Bible, in which uh, at the moment of creation, that God's image and likeness was put in the human person, and he created us on in this world. So if he created us in this world with his image and likeness in us, that somehow how this world works itself out and how we act individually and how we act together is part of how we fulfill that human dignity, that image and likeness of God that is with within us. So that's a one very, very important uh understanding of of why what's going on in the world is very important to us. The second issue is is not universal to people who believe in God, but it is part of our our Christian faith that Jesus came among us and he took upon us took upon himself our human nature. And so our human nature and how we live is part of how we view our relationship uh, to to God. So that's why we do look at things that are in the world. We look at it from the perspective of how should those things play themselves out? What do we need to do to influence those so that our world is more respectful of human dignity? It is more respectful of justice, more respectful of those of us who walk uh, walk this this earth. And so this week, uh, we're going to speak about, you know, a few things that um, relate and are very, very critically important. And but the first thing we're going to speak about is is Haiti. And um, obviously, I don't have to go into it why that is such a kind of critical issue at at the moment. And I am delighted that we have as our first guest, Dimitri uh, Elias Legere, who is the uh, who has written the author of God's Love, Haiti, 
and um, I'm delighted that he is with us. He is a member of the um, uh, he's a member of the parish where I'm in in our Savior Church right near Grand Central and not too far away from the United Nations in New York. And I am very delighted that he is taking the time to be uh, with us as the, um, you know, as somebody who can kind of shed a little bit light on, on Haiti. So Dimitri, thank you so much for joining us on Just Love. Thanks for having me, Father. It's great to see you in a different context. Great. Good. So would you, um, Dimitri, for our listeners, just give them a little bit of sense of your background uh, before we get into what is very, very sad, but very tragic and very important topic. Well, I was born in Haiti. I was born actually in the neighborhood that was the epicenter of the earthquake, um, but 40 years before the earthquake. And I moved to New York as a teenager, classic immigrant, moved to Flatbush and became a journalist, and then I changed careers and became a humanitarian with the United Nations, a communications advisor with the United Nations. And my first mission for the United Nations was working in Haiti after the earthquake. I was a spokesperson. I looked at the hard numbers, promoted awareness of the challenges, and I also also, um, communicated uh, the hopeful parts about the rebuilding Haiti after the earthquake. And after that, I wrote a novel inspired by my time working in Haiti. The novel is called God Loves Haiti. And it's about a woman of faith, a Catholic woman, who, um, who questions everything, having to rebuild her life after surviving the earthquake. As things, as fate would have it, I continued working for the UN, and Haiti still periodically still has disasters, like the one of two weeks ago, with the president getting killed. But the issues remain the same, which is how do you reconcile extreme bad luck with um, faith? And that's what my book and my work is about. Well, Dimitri, thank you so much for um, for kind of giving us that background, uh, which, you know, puts you in a very, um, very good position to share with our listeners some of what's going on there some of the uh, tragedy that is going on there. So again, you know, not all the listeners might be as up to um, speed on what's going on. Can you just kind of give a little bit of summary for our listeners about the current situation in Haiti? I do think probably most people, um, you know, were aware that there was an assassination uh, there of the president, but then we heard about two different prime ministers, and we heard about people from kind of Colombia and other places being involved. So could you kind of give our listeners who might not have been following as closely just a little bit of the basic facts of what has gone on there in the past few weeks? Well, one good thing to remember about Haiti is because of its neighborhood, because it's near the U.S., it's near the American Republic, countries that are considerably richer, Every time there's a new president, people, after the president is elected and all the hope is, in, is, is uh, after the novelty wears off, the president's life is in danger. Within a year of being president of Haiti, if you don't tangibly improve people's lives economically, which no president has, at least in the last um, 30 years, their lives are in danger. Uh, and the protests come out after a year. 
um, because there's always challenges that are just bigger than a president, particularly the economic challenges. So with this president, protests broke out after a year, wondering what's he doing, because people's lives have not meaningfully improved. And um, unlike many of his predecessors, usually the protests break out after a year or two, these presidents escape to another country. Um, if the, but this time, he didn't get a chance to escape. Um, run into exile, this time he got assassinated. Um, but the assassination created a vacuum that's also an opportunity because Haiti politically it has been unstable the last 40 years. And there's been a lot of theories about why the instability keeps happening. Part of it is incompetent politicians. Politicians, when they do have the opportunity to invest in infrastructure or in the economy, send the money to South Florida or to Montreal or to Paris. But a bigger part of it is the economy is very hard for a president to affect. That's all about investment, taxation, um, and trade. And trade. And, and Haiti has always been unlucky with trade partners. Um, because our neighbors are more likely to invade Haiti, to dominate Haiti physically, instead of give the trade policies that would help improve the economy. So this president happened to get, get assassinated, and now many prime ministers, many different factions want the job, but no one really is proposing how they would do better than him. And what happened to him is, has been a recurring theme for 30 years. Unless the economic fundamentals of Haiti get changed, no president will last. Now, Dimitri, I thank you very much for those insights and kind of painting a picture. Um, but Dimitri, I don't think I'm reading too much into what you said. That's a pretty grim picture, isn't it? It is. It is. But there are worse because I work for the U.N., I've worked in emergencies and humanitarian um, crisis around the world. And Haiti is 100, we rank, the, we rank Haiti 170 out of, 20, 20, out of 190 countries. Right. That means there are 20 countries less developed than Haiti. Now, um, but Haiti, what favors Haiti, what means that Haiti could turn in a heartbeat to a, on a better path, it's a neighborhood where it's based. As in to be able to sell Haitian rice, there are rich neighbors everywhere. The Bahamas is one of the 50 richest countries on earth. Make, and you could swim to the Bahamas from Haiti. The Dominican Republic is 88, most developed country on earth. You could walk to the Dominican Republic from Haiti. Florida is 200 miles away. If, we got fa if Haiti got favorable trade relations with the US, the richest country on the planet, its economy could turn like this. But Haiti has been unlucky in that way. Um, it, one famous case is rice industry. Haiti was a big exporter of rice up until the mid-90s when Bill Clinton imposed a sudden tariff on Haitian rice. Suddenly the industry collapsed and Haitians had to import rice for the first time in their history from Arkansas, <laughs> Clinton's hometown, home state. And in 20, 2013, after the earthquake and we we're struggling to find industries to develop Haiti, Bill Clinton himself apologized for creating a policy as president that crippled the Haitian economy 15 years earlier. But the good news there is, if a US policy could destroy an industry in Haiti in the blink of an eye, 
U.S. policy, trade policy that's favorable could improve all the industries that Haiti has and has in common with the Bahamas and the Dominican Republic. Great beaches, potential for tourism, um, potential for agriculture, boom. Haiti has a sustainable development crisis, environmental crisis, like there's not enough um, trees. But that also could be a great opportunity for experimentation, for new scientific breakthroughs in figuring out how to get farming going and agriculture going and trees going, regrowing in the whole island. But it needs that okay from Washington that it's cool to get creative about trading with and developing Haiti economically, not militarily. We're speaking with Dimitri Elias Leger, who was born in Haiti, now lives in New York City. He is the author of a novel called God Loves Haiti and has been in working in communications and advocacy with the United Nations for over a decade. And we're speaking about the situation in Haiti. Now, Dimitri, I know there is probably no answer to this question, but you certainly did just point out um, certain a path forward, some hope, which is which is great, given all of the the negative things that are have happened that are on on the table. Um, so I asked the the question that has no answer. Why not? Why haven't it, why hasn't it been done? Well, history is a powerful thing, and people kind of history creates patterns that people kind of repeat. It's like the world is like a collection of families, and every brother and every sibling plays a role, and and they kind of stick to the script for much longer than they should, oftentimes. And here, the relationship between the richest country in the hemisphere and the poorest country in the hemisphere. Both countries were created, one independence from Europe, from colonial rule in Europe, 30 years apart. America was, got independence in 1776. Haiti got independence in 1804. The difference between the two countries' fate in the last 100 years is when England lost to George Washington and the gang, they turned around and said, fine, you want independence, but let's still do business. Let's trade as if I buy all your, all your products, all your or your cotton with no, with the same tariffs, with the same prices, with no beef, no hesitation. When Haiti won independence in 1804, France was upset, the US was upset. And they convinced England, Spain, and the other great powers of the era to not trade with Haiti. To in, in fact, not only to not buy, do business with Haiti, to punish Haiti for wanting freedom. So the Haiti had to pay the French to stay away, to stay free. So basically, in many ways, economic terms, if King George lost the war and said, you know what, I'm not buying your cotton anymore. You guys want to be free, be free, but we're not buying anything from you. I'm going to convince France not buying anything from you. American economy would have starved. There would not have been a boom because what happened was, was a boom. England kept buying. So we had to import slaves to keep producing and our economy blew up in the 19th century. Um, but if England said no, and I'm gonna convince all my friends to not trade with you. You're gonna have to trade with the other free states of the Americas. Oh wait, there are none. <laughs> the US would have been screwed. That's what happened to Haiti. So it missed out on the Haiti's relationship 
with the richest countries of the last 200 years, which is US, France, England, has always been acrimonious, has always leaned towards um, dominance versus collaboration. Um, so now it's like, who's gonna be the bigger person in that, hey, let's collaborate with this country and develop it. It's easier to develop Haiti than it would be to develop any country in Africa, for example, because those countries are much bigger with massive populations, or their neighbors are poor. So it's hard to develop trade when you're sub-Saharan African. But to develop a trade in America, if you're in the, already a wealthy hemisphere and Haiti being physically close to all these wealthy countries, all it needs is collaborative spirit with Washington, as opposed to, hey, do we dominate you with our military? Or do we impose an embargo to punish you? Because you're unstable. That's not the right answer. That's always been a reflexive answer. So, D Dimitri, um, it seems to me that there's always, at least in the foreign policy of the United, United States, there's so oftentimes been a, a contrast between how we treat Cuba and how we treat Haiti. Without getting into all of the reasons for that, we we tend, I mean, we we tend to be have been tried economic isolation with Cuba, and we're going to talk about Cuba a little bit later. We haven't really overtly tried economic isolation with Haiti, but what you're telling me, subtly, we don't do business with with Haiti. No. No. Why not? Don't don't Americans like to make money? Why aren't we making money off Haiti? Hey, Haiti's, Haiti has 11 million people population. It's the, it's the second most populated country in the region. Cuba has 12 million. The Dominican Republic has 11 million. Haiti has 11 million. Okay. And so if you develop Haiti, the three most populated countries in the region could all be powerhouses. And that would be a win for us. So <clears throat> you did, when we talked before, say there is opportunity now. Yes. Why do you say that? I mean, it seems like it's so dark. Why do you say there's opportunity? We happen to have a new president. So that's a, that's a win of hope. He actually thinks Black Lives, seems to believe Black Lives Matter. Haiti is just Black Lives Matter, but a, uh, a hundred miles down the, um, the Caribbean Ocean. Um, it's not quite Miami, but it's not far either. Right. Um, so there's an opportunity here for them to extend that policy of wanting to see all countries develop and all black communities overcome historical barriers. Haiti is a, a layup really because of trade policies alone, he could make a difference without having boots on the ground and using drones. So, so that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a window for hope, the new president in Washington. And Haitians, Haitians have become more American the last 40 years because the last dictator left in 86. And now everybody's second language is English. Before the second language was French. Um, Haiti is more ready for the opportunity. Okay. So they, you, this president being assassinated, yeah. um, one of the reasons they're protesting against this president got to be so passionate is because there was an economic money trail of aid Haiti received, particularly after the earthquake, that disappeared. Mm. The corruption between, there's a, there's a ruling party in Haiti, there's a ruling community of business people, 
that a small families, eight families control all Haiti's wealth. And that those eight families control who's president and who's not. They control, they finance the gangs. When they don't like the president, they finance the gangs that create the unrest, that make the country unlivable and make the presidency impossible. Those eight families have been exposed now. They want a better Haiti too. Now they need more persuasion to reinvest in Haiti instead of always having escaped hatches from Haiti. Despite, we have billionaires. Haiti has like six billionaires. The country has an economy of, has a GDP of 8 billion, but six people, six families have billionaires. How do you be a billionaire in a country that's so poor? But that means those people have resources that are not being reinvested in Haiti because they don't believe in the stability of Haiti and they don't invest in the future of Haiti. So they need to be led by example by Washington and the American business community. But they also see now it's impossible to live there. And the president's not safe. That means they're not safe. Mm. So there's an opportunity there to persuade them to collaborate on a better Haiti. So, Dimitri, am I right in um, kind of hearing you say, I'm going to put words in your mouth, but this assassination could be a wake-up call? That, But how is it different than the stuff in the past? Why, wasn't, why do you see this as maybe, quote-unquote, a real wake-up call that, that could actually keep people awake? Well, because the presidency, even in democracy, the presidency is given the weight of royalty. Okay. And assassinated president is unprecedented. Last time it happened was in 1915 in Haiti. Uh, uh, so there's no living memory of this happening. Okay. Presidents have been sent to exile for being incompetent. It happened in 2004. But the next two presidents served at their terms. Okay. And then 1994, there was a coup. In 1986, the president went to exile. But there's no precedent of an assassination. Okay. And assassination means no one is safe. That means even if you live in an ivory tower with your billions, you're not really safe anymore. Because assassins clearly have no limit now. And that is a new wake-up call. Okay. And that is also a new opportunity for people to change, to reinvest in the country in a way that give some positive momentum economically to the rest of the population. Because right. now they're recurring the same pattern of new president, protest, exile, or coup d'etat. That pattern was cute, but now it's deadlier. So no one yeah. feels safe. The, um, so for that opportunity to become actualized, what are some of the things that need to happen in order to, to, to kind of move in that positive path? I'd start, I'll, I'll, I'll start with a commitment from Washington right. to develop the country. Right. And that signal to the American business community and the Haitian business community uh-huh. would mean that they should be more open and investing in Haiti. So- and then that, then that could open the door for a political stability. Okay. So, Dimitri, let me let me um, kind of ask a, a question, which is a little bit philosophical. And and again, um, so how does the United States do that 
without being condescending and colonialistic? Well, I take it a step further. How does the America, how does the Washington convince the world that his foreign policy is in good faith when the president's been in power now, you know, a few months? Yeah. Um, but his predecessor and the opposition party doesn't believe in collaborating with yeah. nations that are less favorable right. than, than most, than Western Europe. Right. Like the, 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 the opposition party believes, okay, a few countries are worthy. A handful of countries of Western, of Western Europe are worthy of constructive collaboration. Everybody else is an enemy of some kind. Nice. From China to Africa to <laughs> Haiti um, and Cuba, right. their vision is antagonistic. So one problem American foreign policy has today is convincing the world that if they operate positively, it's going to be a lasting win of change and goodwill. But people are skeptical that, well, uh, uh, they've seen the story of an of American president, a Democratic elected, a Democratic Party president, want to do constructive relations with the rest of the world while the opposition party hamstrings them. All right. All right. So, so it's hard for, so there's skepticism on America's ability to follow up on constructive right. foreign policy. And so Haiti falls among many countries where it's like, okay, you mean well now, but how is this really different when the opposition party right. has um, different views on how these countries should be dealt with? Dimitri Elias Leger, the author of God's Loves Haiti, has been working at the United Nations in communications and advocacy. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on Just Love. I just learned a tremendous amount and, you know, you didn't hide the difficulties, the troubles that are there, but you also did give us a sense that there may well be a path forward, which requires, you know, it requires some co cooperation from the international community, leadership, and some change within some of the leading families of Haiti. So thank you so much for, um, for spending the time with us. And Thank you for the work that you do. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Tom, I, uh, why don't we uh, take a break and uh, we'll be back in just a moment. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassion. Join us when we come back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Now, let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more uh, cooperative, will be more compassionate. And that's what we seek to do. Um, You know, we talk about big issues. We talk about Haiti. We're going to talk about Cuba. But on an individual level, we can make our world more just and more uh, compassionate if we ourselves live that way. Um, Hey, Tom, have you ever been to Haiti? No, Monsieur, I haven't. It's on the bucket list. I've always, I've always wanted to go, um, and it's not. I know it's not far away, but it's it's just something I've I've always felt drawn to. But I've never gone. I've never gone. I have to. So, which, which countries in the Caribbean have you been to? Uh, you know, I've never been to the Caribbean. Believe oh. it or not, ever. I, it's funny. I I've always wanted to go to Puerto Rico. I've always wanted to go to Dominican Republic. Always wanted to go to Haiti, but I've never actually done that. So. Uh, so that's on the bucket list. <laughs> um, that bucket must be pretty big. <laughs> it, it, well, it is. And every time we have a guest on the show, it gets bigger. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, so I, I have, um, I've not been to Haiti. Mm. I have been to the Dominican Republic. I've been to Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, as when we talk with our next guest, I have been to Cuba. But I haven't been a lot to the Caribbean, but I have been to, to those places. And, um, you know, the, the other thing, which is just me, and it's got to do with the fact that my skin is fairly fair mm. uh, on vacations. I'm not usually a big person to go to places where there's, you know, a lot of beach and just kind of hang out in the sun right. all the time. So that's why I haven't been to the Caribbean, um, as much, uh, you know, for vacations and, and thing, uh, and things like that. So, uh, anyway, but, um, no, but, uh, I am delighted now that, uh, that our next guest, uh, it, we're going to be able to speak about some of the situation in Cuba. We're going to be, sp- our next guest is Alejandro Bermudez, who is the executive director of Catholic news agency and Prensa group. And, uh, I'm delighted that we're going to be able to um, to speak with him about the situation in in Cuba. Uh, it's been a you know very interesting situation. I mean, obviously, we don't get oftentimes a lot of news coming out of Cuba, and you know I think we always have to recognize that um, there probably is a fair amount of of kind of censorship. And so you have to always take that with a with a grain of salt. But uh, but I think it is important that we talk about uh, Cuba. You know, I myself have um, I've been to Cuba uh, three times. So I one kind of a long time ago is basically just as a uh, as a tourist um, in the late in the late seventies when you could go there. There was a there was a window of opportunity. And I went with another priest. We just went to kind of see what was, 
what was what was going on there. Uh, the parish I was in, Washington Heights, was one of the places where some of the Cubans who left in the 1960s settled for a while in Washington Heights, and then there was generally a migration out to uh, New Jersey. So that always was of, of interest to me. So I, so I went there for a week just to get a sense of what was going on. And then I, I was very, very fortunate to go about 20 years later when Pope John Paul II visited Cuba and was able to, um, to, to visit there as part of that kind of papal pilgrimage, being one of the pilgrims who accompanied um, that. And that was a very, very interesting and very kind of fascinating trip that I had, uh, had there. So that was very, very, uh, you know, very interesting and very positive. And then the third time I went was just a couple of years ago. Uh, when um, uh, Cardinal Dolan was invited by the president of Cuba to visit Cuba and the bishops of Cuba also invited him. And so I had the opportunity to spend, again, five or six days there in a very different uh, look at what was going on in, um, in Cuba. So it's a place which is to me, I am very, very interested in it for a variety of reasons. And so um, hopefully in a, in a couple of minutes, we will be able to speak with Alejandro Bermudez, um, who is the executive director of the Catholic uh, News uh, Organization. So, um, Tom, you have, as you mentioned, you have not been to, uh, to Cuba, right? Ultimate senior. I had no. I ha- I've 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 never had the opportunity to go. Right. So uh, it, you know, it, it, it to me it would be something. And as you said, I've had many Cuban friends. So right. it's something that I know I've heard about from their parents. So it would be something that would be very welcome for me to do. You know, I would love to be able to go. <laughs> um, Alejandro Bermudez, the executive director of Catholic News Agency. Thank you for taking the time to be with us um, on Just Love today. I am very grateful for your making the, uh, making the time to be with us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Monsignor. Uh, I'm, I'm really glad to, uh, to be here. I really uh, like your show when I am driving and I can use my serious uh, radio, I definitely go to the Catholic Channel. Wonderful, that is, that is great. Um, so um, could you, um, uh, give our listeners just a little bit of about your background so they know a little bit more about you before we get into the topic of what's going on in Cuba. Yes, well, I was, uh, I was born in Lima, Peru, <coughs> raised in Argentina, but by my Argentinian father and my Spanish mom, and then went back to Peru and, uh, and had a, a, a moment at the end of my teenage years, a moment of real uh, revelation. Since everybody's Catholic, no matter what, in Latin America, we call that a conversion. You know? And then I found out in the United States, conversion, you use it only when you, you know, come from a different religious tradition. So I would be for Americans a reversion. Uh-huh. And at that time, I decided to, 
to think about how could I serve the, the Lord? And I was, in, I was doing what we call in Peru general studies. You know, so you have two years in college to make a decision what kind of profession you're going to follow. And I read this St. John Paul VI quote. Uh, at that time, there was no internet, so it was in you know, the paper. Right. He said, if St. Paul would live today, he would become a journalist. And that, that quote completely changed my life. And I ended up studying journalism, joined a, 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 a small Catholic news agency that was founded by a German Cambodian missionary in, in Lima and the rest is history. That is, that is, that is fascinating. So um, we can call you St. Paul of the 21st century. I, I hope, I hope, I hope I deserve that. I, I'm planning to use the rest of my life to reach that. Uh, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, anyway. so Alejandro, uh, um, give, give all, I want to get in because it, to me, it's so very, very fascinating. Um, can you give our listeners just a little bit, because maybe they not all ha- haven't been following it, but what has been going on in Cuba for the past few weeks? Um, it, 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 is, uh, it is related with two things that have worsened in, uh, inside the island and has put the 60-year-old uh, the regime in a very complicated situation. Uh, number one, uh, the, the collapse of Venezuela took away a tremendous amount of source of income because Cuba was receiving free oil that they will send at you know, market price. And that will be the money for funding daily life from a communist government that is forced to provide everything to the people. So that, the, the, the disappearing of that money it has created a, a, a tremendous uh, scarcity and un, unprecedented scarcity. And this is even worse of what the uh, Fidel Castro called the special time, quote unquote, after the fall of the Soviet Union and the you know, Soviet money start, started coming. This is even worse than that. You know, the scarcity is even worse than that. People literally are you know, going to the fields to try to find herbs that they can mix with some rice if they, you know, find the rice to eat. It's it's extreme situations, you know. And the other component is that is COVID. COVID has been a disaster. uh, There are 11 million uh, inhabitants in Cuba and uh, the government has officially recognized a quarter of a million cases of COVID. But we know through several priests that work there is that when you have a COVID patient that is going to die, the practice in the Cuban hospitals is to move them to any different guard, you know, be it cardiology, be it contagious diseases, whatever. So when that person passes away, it 
it doesn't count as dying of COVID. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's very likely that the numbers are much higher. So when the Delta variant came in July, so at the beginning of this month, eh, the number of that completely spiked, completely confused the country. And so let us try to imagine when we were at the beginning of the pandemic, people were dying, we didn't know what to do. And eh, Cuba, because it's you know, very nationalistic, they claim to have developed their own three-shot vaccine. But eh, nobody trusts that vaccine because it hasn't been independent, tested, or confirmed. And they don't have the money to buy not even the Chinese vaccine, which is you know, fairly cheap in the market. So eh, this situation of desperation has been unprecedented. And that is what exploded uh, two Sundays ago when people were just out in, uh, and protesting. And most, most of that began with, you know, bring us food, bring us medicine, you know, get, get a hold of the COVID crisis. But then they ended up with shouting of, you know, freedom, taking our Lady of Charity of El Cobre as symbol of this, so this all uh, began like a, you know, we are set up to a, we need to change the whole system. So Alejandro, if you were to assess it, um, is it a strong protest or mild or how do, how do you assess it in terms of the strength of the protest? That's that's very uh, uh, that, that that's a very good question, uh, Monsignor. Very good question, because uh, the answer depends on how we measure. It, you know? Right. So if we measure right now in on the street protest, that has been mostly controlled. Right. And and the reason he said uh, is that the Cuban government has a, a phenomenal repressive uh, system. You know best equipments from uh, Eastern Europe, uh, best, uh, uh, um, um, you know, inordinate amount of, uh, of people. Remember that there is uh, a, a mandatory conscription. So, uh, so, you know, a good part of the population is, is repressing the other part of the population. So from that, from that measurement, you could say that it has been mostly controlled. And I say mostly because the government doesn't know in what small or mid-sized town one of these protests are going to spark again. So they continue to have it in in a more controlled manner. So uh, let's move a little bit. Uh, And as I kind of was mentioning at the beginning, um, about two years ago, right before COVID, so maybe about um, 18 months ago, um, I was the privilege to kind of go along with um, Cardinal Dolan when we visited uh, Cuba at the invitation of the Cuban bishops and the president of, of Cuba. Um, what is your sense of the Catholic involvement in these protests, whether it be lay Catholics or members of the, um, of the, the hierarchy? 
Great question, Monsignor. Let's talk about the bishop first. Okay. I, I sympathize with the bishops. I understand people being very angry for uh, not, uh, you know, not having a more outspoken bishops about this situation, although they have released, a, you know, a pastoral letter, very prudent, not the kind of things that, you know, most people would like to see. But uh, people have to understand that the day-to-day -day operation of the church depends 100% on the state. So if a bishop wants their seminarians to move from their house to the house of studies, you know, uh, that van will not operate uh, without the gasoline that is provided by the government on a daily basis, you know, drop by drop. So, uh, so the bishops are in a in a in a in a, in a you know catch twenty two situation in which they say yes, we can bet on on a reform that we don't know where it will come. You know, after sixty years, the government has proven to be extremely resilient in shutting down any kind of revolution, you know. And in the other hand, make the church operate on a regular basis. So make sure that you have the, uh, you know, scarce wheat to do your your hosts, that you can consecrate the imported wine to be available for you for, to celebrate mass. So, so people that are, you know, if, if, if impatient with the bishop, have to take that in mind. It's a it's a very different position. I don't envy any of the bishops in Cuba. You know, like Andrew, let me just inter interject for a second because, you know, having been there for only four or five days and had conversations with a number of the bishops, I would confirm exactly what you're you're saying, um, and I I have no problem in in saying being from the United States, it was a little bit, I don't know if the word was shocking, but surprising to me because, and being from New York, we expect people to be more outspoken and to kind of say what they're thinking. So it took me a while to adjust to the reality that you have just so eloquently kind of laid out for our listeners. So speak about Catholic laity now. Well, that's a completely different ball games. New Yorkers will be very happy with them. <laughs> They're incredibly brave, incredibly outspoken, and actually the core of the uh, of of the of the, uh, the dissidents uh, are basically pinning in, uh, in in major Christian personalities. One of them is uh, Dr. Elias Bisset, uh, an evangelical, uh, incredibly brave man, have been in jail several times, and he comes out and continues to protest. You know, he's a, a, what we call, you know, a whole a, a consistent, he's a, he's a medical doctor, and he opposes two things that are legal and practice, you know, quite frequently in in Cuba, which is uh, abortion and death penalty, and he's you know equally uh, uh, outspoken and paying with his life because when you go to jail in Cuba, 
several years of your life are being rested, you know, because of the conditions in which they put you. The other one is Osvaldo Payas Sardinas, great Catholic, been in jail since he was young, eh, incredibly learned in the social doctrine of the church. And he created a movement called Movimiento Cristiano Liberación, you know, a, a Christian liberation movement. He died in very, very suspicious condition, but he had already created a, 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 a major network of believers of this, which is basically Cuba has to become a democracy. The free elections have to be warranted. Every Cuban inside or outside Cuba should have the right to vote for a new presidency. And the system should follow the principles of the social doctrine of the church, which he knew and developed very well how to apply them in Cuba in their documents. So uh, it, the, the level of conviction of these guys and how expanded and organized they are, I think uh, are, uh, are, are probably the greatest hope for an, uh, a transition to democracy that we all, all hope will happen. And I think the answer to this question is you never know, but given the strong, which you articulated, uh, ability and power, it's purely military force um, of the Cuban, Cuban government, should we be hopeful for success or not? Uh, the level of hope, uh, Monsignor, will depend on the international community, and especially the United States. Okay. Uh, the, the, uh, obviously, there is right now like a perfect storm in the positive sense for, you know, for the forces of, of freedom and, and democracy. Things have never been this bad. People have never been more angry. And one of the things that I was surprised to see when I was looking at all the cell phone videos of the protest is how reluctant many of the uh, of the policemen or the security forces were willing to physically intervene. I never seen that before. Yeah. Right. And only the special, you know, what they call the black troops, right. where we know them are, you know, the elite force and they right. go and they're completely ruthless. But the fact that the, the people in the army and the police are starting to feel like, man, I am more one of them than one of you know the, the Communist Party. But without the intervention of the of the United States, that obviously doesn't mean military, but I mean the the, the US has control of so many screws that uh, that they can really make the difference. Yeah. Um Thank you so much. Uh, I am just delighted, Alejandra, that I learned a whole lot, and I have reached, and I know our listeners did. Um, so, thank you for taking the time to join us on Just Love, and I hope that you know as things progress, I might ask you back sometime in the future as things move there. Very happy to do it, Monsignor. Very happy to do it. God thank bless you, and God bless your. Your, your audience. Well, thank you so much. Alejandro Bermudez, Executive Director 
of Catholic News Agency, Prenser Group. Uh, thank you for being with us. Tom, why don't we take a break and we'll be back in just a moment on Just Love on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Welcome back to Just Love. We had a very, I think, interesting uh, couple of conversations. Um, I learned a lot about Haiti and Cuba. Very interesting countries that are so close to each other, but so very, very different in many different ways. And But I think it's critically important for us in the United States, because they're so close, to realize that when we look at our social teachings, our values, we really need to look at some of those countries in which there is a tremendous amount of suffering and pain in different ways. So I'm glad we were able to uh, talk about those places and make us, make all of us a little bit smarter. Thanks for being with us on Just Love. Just do it. Love God, your neighbor, yourself. Our world will be just and compassionate. The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to The Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. 